You know, sometimes in life we have some pretty uh, hair-raising moments, things that maybe scare us or frighten us or, or things that just kind of get our adrenaline pumping. Maybe something that's happened to you, maybe something that's almost happened to you, like you almost got into a car accident and you just feel that hair on the back of your neck stand up, your heart starts racing. Maybe it's something you've experienced or something you heard or something that you saw. That happened to me, not in what I experienced or heard, but what I read this week in studying the text that I'm going to preach from today. This text that we're going to look at in Numbers chapter 27 today is a challenge to anyone who bears the role and responsibility of pastor, of pastoring and leading God's people. The title of this sermon is The Seriousness of Shepherding. And there is a seriousness to shepherding and leading and caring for God's people. But while this sermon does challenge me directly, it's not just for me. It's not just for Alan, who's our other pastor here at Sojourn. It's not just for men in our church who desire to be elders or who will be elders in the future. It's for all of you as well because it affects you as well as being a part of this church. So whether this is your church or you're visiting, whether you've never been to church before or it's been a long time, I want you to listen today to God's word as we open it up this morning and and hear the challenge that comes from this word and as well as the hopeful message that is provided. So with that, let's open God's word and read from Numbers 27 this morning and see what God has to have. So it has to say to us. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Numbers 27 this morning. And I'm just going to read a few uh, verses for us as we begin. And we're going to start in verse 12 of Numbers chapter 27. This is what's written in these three verses. The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be able to have this time together this morning to be able to open up your word. And as we pray every week, Father, we just pray that you would use this time, that you would bear fruit in the lives of your people this morning. As we sit under the preaching of your word, myself included, Lord, that you would change our hearts. You would encourage us and challenge us and help us to be more of who you desire for us to be, not just as individuals, but as a church family together. Lord, we're grateful for your word, that it's a gift of grace to us, that we might know you better, that we might know ourselves better in light of who you are. And so as we look at this chapter and this story in the book of Numbers, I pray that you would just drive these truths into the depths of our heart and that because we've been here today, things would look different in our life and the way that we view your church, the way that we view you. So we give this time to you. We pray you'd be honored and glorified by it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we jump into Numbers 27 here, we see that God's people are nearing the edge of the promised land. They've been journeying in the wilderness for some 40 years now because of rebellion, and they're nearing the edge of this promised land. In Numbers chapter 26, what we see is that a census is taken to to catalog this new generation that's going to go into the promised land. A transition is taking place from the old rebellious generation, those who didn't want to follow God or obey him, that rebelled against him back in Numbers chapter 14. 
And what we saw there is that God said to them, you will not enter the promised land, you will die in the wilderness. And as we've seen, these rebellious people have died off as God said they would. So this transition from the old generation to the new generation who God is giving the land to is occurring and it's almost done. The wilderness journey is almost complete. But here in these few verses in chapter 27, starting in verse 12, there's an intriguing story. Because in this story, we see another transition taking place. But this is a leadership transition, and it's no small thing. What we see in here is that Moses is no longer going to be the leader of God's people. Moses isn't retiring. It's not like he got to the end of his 20 or 40 year career in this case and said, you know what, it's been a good run, but I think I'm going to hang it up and go collect seashells down in Florida. That's not what Moses is doing. He's not packing it up and going his own way. What's happening here is not a retirement from Moses, but God is removing him from leadership over his people. Now, there are two big things that are going on in this text that we're going to look at. And so I want to focus on those two big things. But from those two things, we'll see three points of application that we as Sojourn Church can take away. The first big thing occurs in these verses that we just read, verses 12 through 14. And what happens here is pretty straightforward. God tells Moses to go up the mountain to see into, to look into the promised land. To be able to see all this land that God has said for so long that he's going to give to his people. But this command is not a command of exceeding joy where Moses is just, man, I get to see it first. I'm so excited to get to go in. Now, this command is a bittersweet command given by God to Moses. Because as Moses goes up the mountain, what's clear, what God has said to him is, you're going to go up. I'm going to let you see into this promised land that I've promised to, to my people, those that you've been leading. But I'm going to let you see it because you're not going to go into it. I'm not going to let you lead these people into the promised land. Instead, God tells Moses that he's going to die like his brother Aaron. He won't be permitted to go in. He won't be permitted to be the leader any longer. And the question is, why is that the case? Well, he tells us the reason Moses can't do this is because he rebelled against my word, God says. Because Moses failed to uphold God as holy before the people of Israel. So the question we need to ask now is what rebellion, what rebellion led to God saying, Moses, you can't go into the promised land. You can't lead your people into the promised land. I mentioned this briefly last week in that sermon as a, as a point of context, but it's important for us now to kind of go back to Numbers chapter 20, where this event takes place to help us to understand what has happened. See what God is talking about and why Moses of all people can't go into the land. So flip back with me to Numbers chapter 20 in your Bible and let's look at what's going on here. In Numbers 20, in a few short verses, verses 2 through 13, a sad, sad story is told with a sad, sad outcome. In verses 2 through 6, we see a familiar refrain once again that the people come up against an obstacle, a challenge. They have no water And so they do what they've done over and over again, which is start to freak out. They complain and they grumble that they've been brought out to die in the wilderness. And so they assemble, it says, against Moses and Aaron, the leaders of God's people. So Moses and Aaron do what they've done over and over and over again. They go before God to seek out help. They go before the tent of meeting to to commune with God, to be able to ask him for help, to lead this people in the midst of this rebellion that they are mounting against God's leaders. Look at verses 7 and 8 in chapter 20. 
They go to the Lord and the Lord speaks to them. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. This situation is really similar to something that's happened before to God's people. We looked at this earlier in this series in Exodus chapter 17. God's people come up against the same obstacle. They're wandering around in this barren wilderness and they have no water to drink. And so they cry out and they complain. And in that moment, God gives instruction. Very similar here. He says, what I want you to do, Moses, is I want you to go and I want you to bring water forth from this rock to provide for my people. So it's very similar. God gives similar instructions here in Numbers 20. But the instructions are slightly different. In Exodus chapter 17, God tells Moses to strike the rock with his staff and water will come out. In Exodus 17, God says he himself will stand before the rock as it's struck to essentially take on the judgment that the people deserve. And in God's grace, he will give them water. But here, the directions are different. In Numbers chapter 20, what God tells Moses is not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock. So Moses begins to do what God instructs him to do, but not exactly what God instructs him to do. Verses 10 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. He does what God tells him there. He brings all the people together, but then he does this. He says to them, hear now you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. There's several things going on here, but the bottom line is Moses screws up. Three overt things that he does that are different than what God calls him to do. He first places himself in the position of judge, calling the people rebels, looking down on them, looking down his nose at them, saying, you're a rebellious people. He puts himself in the position as judge. He also places himself in the position of provider. Notice what he says. He says, you rebels, do we, should we bring water out of this rock for you? Moses is essentially saying it's what I do. It's what me and Aaron are going to do to bring forth and provide this water for you. And then the third thing he does is he lifts his hand and he strikes the rock twice instead of speaking to it as God commanded him. Moses screws up. He doesn't do what God says, but notice God still provides water. God is still gracious even in the midst of disobedience. But, but, because Moses didn't do what God told him to do, God brings discipline to Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. From one instance, a devastating declaration. Because, Moses, you did not believe, because you did not uphold me as holy before the people, you will not lead them into the land that I'm giving to them. Now, why does God say the reason that that this discipline is coming is because of Moses' unbelief? I I don't necessarily see unbelief here. But at its core, what we have to see in the midst of this is Moses doesn't follow God's commands, is that Moses doesn't trust God. Perhaps he doesn't believe that just speaking to the rock is going to bring water because in the past he had to actually hit the rock to bring out water. 
Perhaps he doesn't believe that God is going to deal with the sin of these people who are a whole lot like their parents here complaining about the water. But at the end of the day, Moses doesn't uphold God's holiness before the people because he decided to take things into his own hands, his own power, his own ability to bring about this resolution. He sought to stand over the people as judge and provider instead of in the role that God had given to him. The role that God had given to Moses was to be a mediator, was to be a leader, always pointing the people to God, not to himself. At its core, this is an assault on God and his lordship over his people. And Moses' unbelief is very similar to the unbelief of the people back in Numbers 14. Not listening to God, not obeying him in the way that he called them to. And the result is the same for both, exclusion from the promised land. But if you're like me, you may be sitting here going, why such a harsh punishment? I mean, Moses has been leading these people for 40 years. And they're they're not the easiest group of people to lead. They've been rebellious and contentious. They've said they wanted to stone Moses. They want to kill him. Why in this one thing that Moses does, why is that the thing that keeps Moses himself from going into the promised land? Was the key reason for this. And here's the reason. God holds the leaders of his people to high standards. God holds the, key, the leaders of his people to high standards. See, what we actually need to see in this is this is actually gracious. This is gracious because God doesn't just kill Moses on the spot. He doesn't just kill him on the spot. He allows him to continue to live. He allows him to continue to lead. He even brings him up to the mountain to look into this promised land. He doesn't kill him immediately. And we've seen God do that before. We could go back to Leviticus chapter 10, where we preached on that. We looked at Nadab and Abihu and saw that these priests who are supposed to represent the people to God and God to the people go into the tabernacle with unauthorized fire. And in that moment, God strikes them dead. They go flippantly before the Lord. God takes seriously who his leaders are and what they do. He holds them to a high standard. We can't Approach God flippantly, and Moses knows that. He's seen the display of that. See, this is serious because God's leaders lead God's people. And they can lead them into obedience and worship or into disobedience and false worship. See, Moses is a shepherd of God's people. God refers to his people as sheep and his leaders as shepherds. He's shepherding them, guiding them, directing them to where they should go so they might be protected and safe and go where God would have them go. But if Moses, the leader, rebels against God's word, even down to the smallest detail, and goes his own way, he can lead the people into further rebellion by disregarding God's word and God's lordship. The people can start to think, well, I know God said to do this specific thing right here, but, but we probably don't need to do exactly what he said. We, we can twist it and reinterpret it and, and pick and choose what we want to do. So if the leaders start to do that, the people can start to think that as well. So the implication should be obvious to us. It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope into abject rebellion when leaders start to disregard all of the word of God Picking and choosing what to uphold and what to lay aside and how to reinterpret the word that God speaks to them in the way that they want to interpret it. Instead of the way that God would have them lead. 
Well, this is just as true today as it was then. See, a key truth that we need to understand in all this is the authority that Moses has is a borrowed authority. It's a borrowed authority from God. God is the one who's in charge. God is Lord over his people, but he has raised Moses up, given him this authority to lead God's people. And borrowed authority must be stewarded with reverent fear and radical obedience. It has to be stewarded in that way, understanding that God is God and Moses is not, and so he needs to submit fully to him. And when he doesn't, there's consequences for that. But see, this is not just the case for Old Testament leaders like Moses. It's true today as well. Because the people of God have become the church. And the church has leaders. There are pastor elders. That's what we call them. We see that in scripture, elders and overseers. And oftentimes we see the synonym of shepherd used for God's people, the leaders of God's people. At Sojourn, we call the leaders of the church pastors, but pastors are elders and elders are pastors. It's a synonymous term here. But these men are men that God has called to lead local churches in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way to the glory of God and the good of others with borrowed authority. Borrowed authority from God that should be stewarded with reverent fear and radical obedience. We see this throughout the scriptures. James chapter 3, verse 1, a startling verse for those who preach and teach. James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Or as Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Leaders are to keep watch over our souls as God's people, and they will give an account to God for how they've done That at the end, when we as leaders stand before God, that God will ask us how we stewarded his people, how we led his people, how we watched over the souls of his people. So this leads to my first point of application that we see from this text. My first point of application is this. The seriousness of shepherding requires obedience and care. The seriousness of shepherding requires obedience and care. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. If anyone aspires to the office of, of overseer, of elder, of shepherd of God's people, he desires a noble task. But while it's a good aspiration and a noble task to undertake, it should be taken very, very seriously because God holds his leaders to a high standard. The seriousness of shepherding requires obedience. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, a little bit later on, Paul, the writer of 1 Timothy, is speaking to, writing to Timothy, who is a pastor elder in the church. And he says this to Timothy, and by application, all of us who are in this role as pastors and elders. Verse 16 of chapter 4, Paul writes this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Or as another English translation puts it, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. What does this mean? It means that pastors and elders must pay attention not just to what they teach, but how they're living their life. How they're living their life. Are they heeding God's word personally? Is it hitting them in the heart? Are they just giving it to other people to follow? Are they seeking to walk in obedience personally as followers of Christ? 
See, pastors must realize that as they, as they do what this, these different things, that if they watch their life and their doctrine closely, it doesn't just affect them, it affects others as well. It affects those they're leading. We see that with Moses. Moses is called to lead God's people. Moses is called to set an example for them. And it doesn't just affect him, it affects those he's leading as well. The apostle Peter has a similar idea here. First Peter chapter 5. Peter writes this, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And here's his exhortation to elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do it. Not as you see fit to do it. Not the way that you want to. Not the comforting thing, the comforting way that you want to do it. What's comfortable and easy No, as God would have you do it. Then he says this, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, Moses became domineering and Moses did not set a good example. So Moses disqualified himself from leadership. At the end of my fifth grade year in elementary school, I was asked to be on the officers of our safety patrol. Yeah, you know, the ones with the orange thing, right? And so by being uh, one of the officers of the safety patrol at my school meant that I got to go to patrol camp for a week in the summer. Between my fifth grade and sixth grade year, I went to patrol camp for a week. To learn all the ins and outs, the intricacies of being in charge of the safety patrol, which is great. So for a whole week, we go and we learn and we we practice, you know, like cross, don't cross, you know, things like that (laughs) for a week. At the end of that week, we had to take a proficiency exam to pass this test, to be qualified, to be an officer of the safety patrol. And what we determined is I went with three of my other classmates is that whoever got the highest score on the test had the highest rank as the officer. So it was captains and lieutenants and sergeants. And so if you got the best score, you were the captain. Second best score, lieutenant. Third best score, sergeant. So I said, I'm going to ace this thing because I want to be the captain. That's what I want to do. I want to be the captain of this. So we took this test. And after all the scores were in, I got the highest score for my school, which meant that I got to be the captain of the safety patrol of Oak Hill Elementary School in Herndon, Virginia. I got a special badge. (laughs) I got to be at the best crosswalk in the whole neighborhood. I got to run the meetings. I was in charge and I loved it. I got to run the meetings and I remember being in meetings and literally yelling at people in the meetings. (laughs) Yelling at them to quiet down, to listen to me, to follow me. My authority is what mattered. I earned that captain's badge, so listen up, period. But listen, leaders like Moses, pastor elders in the local church should strive to say like Paul, follow me as I follow Christ, not follow me because I'm in charge. God's leaders don't lord it over those they lead. God's leaders must be servant leaders who are watching their own lives and doctrine closely, not only for their sake, but for the sake of those they're leading. The seriousness of shepherding requires obedience and care. 
This is scary to me. Because here I am pastoring and leading. And the seriousness of this is that I need to pay attention to my life, my doctrine closely, not only for myself, but for you as well. It should make me and any other pastor pause before moving forward in this role of seeking to lead and care and feed God's people. I have to remember that my authority is borrowed authority. And I must steward that with reverent fear and radical obedience. Because one day I will stand before holy God and I will give an account for every single thing I've done at this church. Every word I've said, everything I've done to to lead this church, I will stand before God to give an account for that. Shepherding God's people is difficult and it's challenging. As difficult as it is to see Moses fall away in the way that he did at the very end, it's somewhat understandable. Because when leaders take their eyes off their God and seek to do things in their own strength, their own power, and their own ability to serve their own end and their own goals, it never ends well. It never ends well. Recently, a prominent pastor of a large church in America resigned from the church he planted and pastored for some 20 years. And the main reason seemed to be because he'd been accused of domineering leadership, bullying, intimidation, arrogance, and a controlling leadership style. And thousands of people, thousands of people had heard the gospel through his preaching. Probably thousands of people had come to actually know Christ, to cross from death to life and been baptized. Churches had been planted all over the place through the ministry of this local church that this man had been leading. But at the end of the day, the warning signs were not heeded. And now he's a statistic. Speaking of statistics, there's some sobering statistics when it comes to pastors and ministry. 80% of pastors believe that pastoral ministry has negatively affected their family. 80% of pastors feel unqualified and discouraged. 80%. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 70% of pastors do not have someone they consider a close friend. 50% of pastors starting out will not last five years. And one out of every 10 pastors in ministry will not retire as a pastor. Only one out of every 10 will retire as a pastor. Why do I share all this with you today? Because I need you to pray for me. And I need you to pray for Alan. And I need you to pray for other elders that will be pastoring and leading this church. I don't want us to be a statistic. I want us to be faithful. In an instant, Moses disqualifies himself. There is seriousness to shepherding. And I want the leaders of this church to walk in obedience to our God so that we might lead, feed, and care for God's people. So that we might lead God's people in this local church to where God wants this church to go. I want us to be able to do that. The pastor that was uh, the pastor of the church that, that Amy and I were a part of when we were in uh, Louisville, Kentucky for seminary. One time said this. He said he wanted to be in a church family where he could fall apart in front of them. And man, I want that too. I want to be in a church family where I can fall apart in front of you. 
where I can be honest and real, where I can, fe- can confess sin, where I can repent, where I can be refreshed and exhorted and encouraged in the gospel because I need that just as much as you need it. Though I'm in a place of leadership over God's people as a pastor, I am not in a special class of spirituality. See, I think oftentimes we can think that pastors and leaders in the church are in some separate class of of spirituality, that they, they have some different connection to God, that God thinks of them differently. And while God holds them to a high standard, they are not separated into a separate class of spirituality the need for trans- the transforming power of the gospel is the same for me as it is for you. And the enemy likes to speak lies to God's leaders. Because if I can take out God's leaders, then I can take out God's people. He likes to speak lies. I have times of discouragement and disappointment, fatigue and exhaustion, pride, temptation, and sin. I can believe the lies of the enemy. But here's the deal, and I have to constantly remind myself of this, a verse that, that I go back to over and over and over again in the scriptures to remind me that it's not up to me, that it's not me who has to muster up the strength and the, the faithfulness and the sufficiency to do what God has called me to do is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves. To claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. I have no self-sufficiency to lead as God has called me to lead, but I have God. I have God, and he, by his grace, makes his leaders sufficient for the task of leading his people. I was challenged a few years ago before planting this church I was challenged a few years ago to not judge my ministry off whether or not it was successful or it fails, but whether or not I'm faithful to what God has called me to do. Man, I want that to be true, but it's a battle because the world tells you you need to be successful and this is what success looks like, but God's not asking for successfulness. God is asking for faithfulness. And so I want to be faithful. So please pray for me. Pray for us. The seriousness of shepherding requires obedience and care. Now, if we jump back into Numbers 27, we see the second big thing that occurs, which leads to our last two points of application. In verses 15 through 17, it says this, Moses spoke to the Lord. This is right after the Lord has reminded Moses, you're going to go look into the promised land. You're going to see it, but you're not going to go into it. He says this, uh, verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. The congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Moses doesn't complain. He, He doesn't try to justify his actions. He understands that he has screwed up, but he doesn't complain He makes a request. He wants there to be a faithful leader over God's people. He specifically asks that God would raise up a man who will lead them, who will be over this congregation of God's people, not Moses' people, God's people. He asks for a man who will go out before them and come in before them, a man who shall lead them and and bring them in. He wants there to be a shepherd for the sheep. And in verse 18, we see that God selects Joshua to be that man. Joshua is one of the spies who back in Numbers 13 had gone into the land and, and wanted God's people to be obedient, wanted them to go into land. He was actually faithful. 
And so God selects him. He says, commission Joshua, invest authority in Joshua so that the people might obey and follow Joshua. See, by God's design, God's people need to be led. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. That's God's design and God's design is good. And so in God's good design, he says that my people need to be led. So Moses prays for God to raise up a faithful and courageous leader so that the sheep might not be shepherdless. All this leads to our next point of application. The seriousness of shepherding then is a gift to God's people. The seriousness of shepherding is a gift to God's people. See, God cares for his people. And in caring for his people, take seriously those who actually lead his people. What a gift to his church. That it's not just random people. It's not self-appointed people who come and stand up and say, well, I'm going to be the pastor. No, it's God's church that gives that authority and leadership to his people to be able to step in, being ordained and set aside for this work of ministry that's only possible by God's grace and empowerment. See, Paul wrote to Timothy again, a pastor elder, and he exhorted him with these words. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. That's what I want you to do. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy, that's what I want you to do as a pastor. I want you to do that with my people. And he says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering, suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. See, God's leaders protect the sheep. God's leaders teach the sheep. God's leaders care for the sheep. God's leaders exhort the sheep. God's leaders equip the sheep for works of ministry. God's leaders encourage the sheep. It's a gift to the church to know that God cares greatly about who leads his people. And he empowers those leaders to do that work. And they must be faithful to carry this out. There is seriousness to shepherding. But the church has a role in this as well. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, again, just reading this full verse, this is what it says. Speaking to the church, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them for this reason, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Keeping watch is the idea of losing sleep over watching over you. Losing sleep over watching over you. As those who will have to give an account. And then it says this, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. The people of Israel did not make it a joy for Moses to lead. Now that's not a justification or excuse for his disobedience. But this was not a group of people praying for Moses, caring for Moses, encouraging their pastor. And the author of Hebrews says that's of no advantage to you. But listen, men who become pastors just so they can preach will not last. Men who become pastors because they truly love their local church and have compassion for them, those will be the guys that last. And I love this church. I have compassion for this church, and that's you. I long to see you grow. I long to see you mature, to become more like Jesus. I want to see you become who God wants you to be. And for those of you that don't yet know Christ, I long for you to know Jesus. That I want to labor to hear, to hear you say, man, I believe now. 
I was blind, but now I see. I want to see you that don't know Jesus cross over from death to life, being forgiven and set free because of what Jesus has done for you. I want to see healing and hope in your life. I want to see you, all of you, give your life fully and completely to following Jesus in every way, making much of him. I want to be faithful to lead you in these things for years, and I want to do it with joy, not groaning. I want to be faithful to preach God's word. I want to be faithful to shepherd God's people, all with borrowed authority. Now, some of you have been burned by pastors and churches in the past. And this is hard for you to think about. I mean, how do I do this? You've been burned in the past by various leaders in various forms and ways. And to be honest, that makes me really sad and it makes me really angry. And I'm sorry for that. God's leaders should never seek to abuse God's sheep. They should lead and recognize that there is reverent fear and radical obedience when it comes to taking on this role. So if you've experienced that, I'm sorry for that. But listen to me. Don't throw out God's good design for his church because of the sin of a few. And this is God's gift to you, to have people to shepherd you and lead you and teach you and exhort you and protect you, seeing you become fully mature in Christ. See, the seriousness of shepherding means there will be a reckoning for hired hands who do not feed, lead, and care for God's sheep as God has called and commanded them to. So you can know that and you can trust God. Moses prayed for God to bring a faithful shepherd to lead, feed, and care for his people. And Joshua was part of the answer to Moses' request, but he was not the full answer. See, Joshua and any other leaders or kings in Israel cannot uphold this role completely or fully. In fact, most of what we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament is the failures and shortcomings of God's leaders. They can't be the perfect, enduring shepherd that God's people need. And here's the deal. Pastor elders in the local church cannot be the perfect, enduring shepherd that God's people need either. But there is a perfect shepherd, and he has come, and his name is Jesus. Which leads to our third and final point of application. The seriousness of shepherding requires absolute dependence on the chief shepherd. The seriousness of shepherding requires absolute dependence on the chief shepherd. Listen to these words about and from Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 36, speaking of Jesus, says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion literally means to be affected deeply in your bowels. This is a gut reaction. To have compassion is to have an aching in the depths of who we are. And Jesus has compassion for his people so much so that he willingly went to the cross. To die, to stand in a a place of sinners like you and me as a substitute for them. As a substitute for us. That we would no longer be captive to the kingdom of darkness. But be set free to walk in the fullness of new life in and through Christ. That comes from the compassion of our perfect shepherd. John chapter 10. Jesus says this. The thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy But Jesus says, I came that that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. See, Jesus doesn't just lead the sheep. Jesus dies for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. First Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. We've referenced these several times over the last few weeks, but they're so rich and so good. Jesus himself bore our sins and his body on the tree for this reason, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then he says this, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is the chief shepherd. It's Jesus who protects us. Jesus who guides us. Jesus who fights for us. Jesus who leads us through the wilderness, makes us more like himself, and will lead us all the way home to be with him forever. And as we journey in this life, Jesus has established under shepherds to serve his people, to lead them in this way as they fully submit themselves to him. And here's why this matters. Jesus is the only perfect pastor elder of his people. Which means that if you're putting your hope in your pastor, if you're putting your hope in a pastor who you podcast or listen to or someone from your past, then you will be disappointed. You will be disappointed because the only one who can, that you can and should put your hope in is Jesus. He's the only one who will never disappoint. Now, this doesn't mean that you disregard your pastor elders. It doesn't mean you reject Jesus's church. It means that in the midst of striving together in relationship with God's people, that you're always looking to the one who laid down his life for the sheep. See, I fear when some pastors become functional saviors instead of men who through whom the Savior is exalted, conduits of communion, pointing God's people to him and him alone. See, Moses took his eyes off of God and made it about himself and through that disqualified himself. But for us, that's why I hope and I pray that every song we sing, every sermon that's preached, every single thing that we do will ultimately and fully point to our God and King to give worship and honor and praise to him because he alone is the one that deserves it. All of us are sheep. And the seriousness of shepherding makes all of us completely dependent on the chief shepherd who lived a perfect life who died in our place on the cross, that we might be set free from our rebellion, that we might be forgiven of our sin, that we might be adopted as his sons and daughters. And this is so good for me to hear because what this means is that as a pastor, I don't have a separate justification. That I'm justified the same way that you're justified, that I'm made right with God the same way that you are. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is good news for me this morning because When I screw up and I will, when I fail at leading and I will, that it is and always will be the blood of Christ, my King, my shepherd, who makes me brand new, who makes me whole, who makes me a son of God. Sojourn in the simplest way I can say it. What I want to say to you today is this. I need Jesus and you need Jesus. So let's go hard after him together. Will you do this with me? Will you pray with me and for me and for the rest of the leaders of our church? Will you pray for faithfulness and holiness and unity and obedience? Will you pray for strength and focus and endurance for the leaders of this church and for the church as a whole? Will you pray that we would be submitted to the chief shepherd in all that we do? 
that we might be effective in making much of our king and our city and the world so that more and more and more people might hear of him, know him and believe in him and follow him and honor him in all that we do for his glory. Will you do that? As one pastor says, all churches are epic successes full of the eternal, invincible quality of the kingdom of God when they treasure Jesus' gospel and follow him. Leaders will come and go. Local churches will come and go. But Jesus' church will never be overcome. Sojourn Church is not my church. This is Jesus' church. And the good news is is that I love this church, but Jesus loves it even more than I do. So let's be faithful to follow him, to follow him in everything that we do, treasuring him in everything that we do for his glory and for our good. One of the best ways that we can be reminded that this is Jesus' church is to take communion together. In this family meal, we eat bread, signifying that it was Jesus' body given for us. And we drink the cup signifying that it was Jesus' blood shed for us. Without that, we are shepherdless people. This meal reminds us every time we gather that Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. That has now made us a blood-bought family of brothers and sisters. So as we come forward together this morning, let's be encouraged that the seriousness of shepherding is a blessing to us. For our good, for our joy, and for the glory of our God. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I just want to ask you this morning not to come forward to take communion. Because as we come forward, as you see people getting up out of their seat and coming forward this morning and taking the bread and taking the cup, what they're declaring to God and to one another is that we're desperate for the chief shepherd. That we realize apart from Christ laying down his life for us that we are lost, condemned in our sin and our rebellion. This doesn't actually save us. It's a testimony of the fact that God has already saved us in Christ. And so if you don't yet know Christ, we don't want you to come forward to take communion this morning. We want you to take Christ today. That you would submit yourself to Jesus. Turning away from sin and turning to him. Believing that he died for you and your sin. That God raised him again from the dead. That you might have eternal life. And so if you've never taken Christ. If you've never repented and believed. Would you do that today? I invite you to do that today. Just hang out in your seat. Ask God to save you today. And if you have questions about what that means, please come talk to me afterwards or any of our other leaders. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements, tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you, for his sheep, will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be able to gather together as your people today, your sheep, the sheep that Jesus laid down his life for, That before the foundation of the world, you predestined us to be a part of your family, knowing that we would need a leader, someone who would go before us, who would sacrifice himself for us. And so we praise you today, Lord, that that's not in me, that's not in any other leader in this church, that is in and through Jesus and Jesus alone. But Lord, we thank you that in the midst of that, that you saw fit to provide leaders for your church, for your people, that that's a gift to us. That the seriousness of shepherding is a blessing to us. So Lord, I pray for myself this morning. I pray for the other leaders of this church this morning. Those that will lead in the future that you would help us, Lord, to be faithful. Lord, we want to care most and always about faithfulness to what you've called us to. Not about reputation. Not about size. Not about accolades. But about exalting the name of Christ our King. So Lord, we want to submit ourselves to you 
as leaders of this church and as people of this church, submit ourselves to you, to follow you, to be faithful to you, to give all glory and honor and praise to you, that we might be effective in what you've called us to do here in Fairfax, to go out and make much of you in this city so that more people might hear and believe the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to be faithful. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are the one that empowers us to do your good work. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.